Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I'm here in the observation room at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law courtroom. And I'm joined, as always, by Stephanie Carvin. And Stephanie, we have some guests today. Yes, we have people from, and this is going to be the subject of some controversy. It's either NYSE Cop or NSI Cop or We've NSICOP, now been corrected. Uh, whatever you want to call it. We're going to find out what it's actually called. Um, we're joined by uh, David McGinty, who's an MP here in Ottawa, who's the chair of the committee, as well as Rennie Marcoux, who's the executive director to the secretariat of the committee. And this is the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. That's the full name. And we've just now settled that the actual pronunciation should be... Ensacop. 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 That's right. going to take some getting used to. So I'll have to go back through 85 podcasts and edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> Seems or reasonable. in French, it's CPSNR. Okay, that's even worse. CPSNR. CPSNR. Okay. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming in. And of course, the reason why we've asked you to come in today is because you've just released your first annual report. It's 140 pages long. It's very substantive. We've made comments in the past, a prior podcast, which as we record this, on Monday, it will be released uh, earlier in the week, and this podcast will probably come out in a few days' time. Uh, and, and we made some comments about how it's what we call an adult report. It's a report that speaks to Canadians at a highly sophisticated level, but is still accessible uh, and deals with some very, very important issues. We thought what we might do today is to talk a little bit about the role of the committee, how it operates, uh, and how it operated in the context of this first annual report, uh, as well as then looking forward going into the electoral season, there will be a turnover on the committee uh, after October, how the committee might operate in the future. But first, maybe we should just start with a basic overview of the committee for you know our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with it. Well, thanks for having us, uh, Stephanie and Craig. It's really it's a pleasure to be here. And this is, um, this is uh, an important moment for us. It's um, the first time in Canadian history that a committee of parliamentarians has been struck to deal with these issues. Uh, so we're a committee of 11 eight members of parliament and three senators, all appointed by the prime minister. Um, members from other parties are appointed on the recommendation of their leader. So we, um, we exist, we have a secretariat, we have a budget of about three and a half million dollars a year. Um, Rennie Marcoux uh, is the executive director of that secretariat. We have about uh, 10 full-time staff. Each member is appointed by the prime minister for uh, typically, well, hopefully the duration of a parliament, but at pleasure. So um, uh, that means certain things under Canadian law. Um, and we, um, we've been given um, the privilege of um, coming together to deal with national security and intelligence uh, issues, uh, typically in a review function. Each member has been cleared to a top secret level. Each member has had to swear an oath. Uh, and uh, each member is also sworn to secrecy for life. And each member as well uh, signs away their parliamentary privilege in terms of the work that goes on at the committee. So, of course, they're not protected if any of the information that we are dealing with is revealed either in the House or the Senate or any one of the committees of either chambers. So it's a tall order, and folks who are um, on the committee are um, are very dedicated, and we've been working really hard. If I could add, uh, Craig, the other thing that they have in terms of a clearance is they're also indoctrinated to certain code word material depending on the requirements of our reviews, but you have been indoctrinated. So basically, indoctrinated, that, it, it sounds really scary, but it yeah. just means you have access. Yeah, you're read to, into. Yeah, certain so certain yeah. information that right. 
and you, you explain <laughs> yeah you and you, you explain the sensitivity how to handle it differently just given access to that as well so basically the chair has the same level of clearance that i have always had in the security intelligence community great yeah. and, and so we talked a little bit in the past podcast about the process the vetting process the security clearance vetting process for for uh, ministers and mm-hmm. and GIC governor and council appointees and so I'm glad we we're able to clarify that because there was yeah. some uncertainty a couple months ago about the sort of clearance process that the members of the committee might go yeah. through uh, so the question I would have right at, at the outset is this has got to be a fairly steep learning curve for your average parliamentarian now operating in this space which is full, as listeners of this podcast know, of acronyms and complicated mandates and remits. Uh, how did you come up that learning curve, and has it been complicated? Well, it has. I can recall when each of the members were first appointed. Um, I called them and spoke with them personally and, and explained to them, uh, Craig, that very fact, that very challenge we were going to be facing collectively. And I, I let them know that we would be meeting for in parliamentary terms, would be what would be inordinate numbers of hours on a weekly basis. Uh, so, for example, for listeners, uh, in this 2018 year that's just gone by, which, of course, is reflected in the review, we met 54 times for an average of four hours per sitting, uh, plus members' uh, personal reading time, which is affected in our, in our um, suite of offices, which is away from the parliamentary precinct in the city of Ottawa in a very secure facility. So folks knew from the get-go that they were going to have to really turn their minds and apply their minds to learning, which is where we spent the first, I think, 90 days mm-hmm. of the uh, committee's uh, focus and efforts. So we, we met with different um, players. We toured all six or seven of the, yeah, of seven. the uh, mm-hmm. seven of the facilities of all of the agencies, brought in all the heads of agencies, met with all the de- deputy community, and so it was very much a steep learning curve, but people uh, rose to that occasion. And um, if they didn't understand, we'd bring folks back in to re-explain it for us so that we were on a common footing so we could springboard from there and do some good work. You've got members from uh, political parties, all the official political parties. You've got members of parliament and you've got senators, uh, very different backgrounds. What's the dynamic like? Well, I've as chair, I, uh, you know, I bring a... a couple of decades of experience of building teams to this job um, and I did it before for a previous government uh, when I ran the National Roundtable in the Environment and the Economy where it was it was interesting because that was a multi-stakeholder body of 25 appointees dealing with highly complex issues and looking to come out uh, at the back end with uh, implementable recommendations for change and maybe even an educative function so I drew heavily on that 10 years of experience and then my 10 years abroad working in roughly 60 countries uh, doing negotiation, mediation, etc. So uh, it was really about starting from the beginning to build a team where everybody um, became more than a shareholder, but an owner. They became owners of the outcome. Uh, and there are certain techniques you can use uh, as a facilitator and as a chair to engender that. I think in very plain English terms, it's really just about making sure people uh, are properly deployed that their interests are, are known early, that their abilities are known early, and that they're able to bring that to bear on whatever the debate is we're having and the discussion we're having. So we we very, very quickly built a nonpartisan environment. Mm-hmm. Um, Rennie would agree. I think it was, I, I mean, here's one of the things that touched on uh, uh, signs for us that was very, very lovely to hear. People would come and meet with parliamentarians and they would speak to us and we would have debates and discussions and probative questions would be asked. And one of the things we started hearing very early back from the, f- the folks that were meeting with us was, I can't tell you apart. Mm-hmm. 
we can't tell what party you're from or not from. And when we got that feedback, we knew we'd, we'd found that sweet spot mm-hmm. uh, where people were leaving that partisanship at the door and, and frankly dealing with what I call a higher nobility of purpose. And the nobility of purpose is let's do this on behalf of 37 million Canadians. We're a proxy group uh, in the House and the, and the Senate, and we have a responsibility to treat this information the way it should be. Yeah. If maybe I could add something from my perspective is, of course, as a longtime public servant, I'm so I was so used to taking the position where you have to support the government in power. The advice you give is how to implement the government's agenda. Whereas now, of course, there's no ministers on a committee, so there's no government representative. It's all whether they're liberals, conservatives, NDP. I have to readjust my total way of thinking and of uh, dealing with the information. It has to be truly nonpartisan, and it can't be designed to support or make the government in power look good. So that's, it's a really interesting adjustment for me as well. Hmm. Yeah. And senators, of course, right? They're also on the committee. So. Right. And, and of course, the, the, we're going into an election cycle. The membership of the committee is almost certainly going to change. There are some members of the committee who will not be running for re-election, and who knows what the outcome of the election will be. There's the prospect of continuity on the Senate side, perhaps, mm-hmm. although even that isn't a sure bet because, of course, the committee members have to be reappointed mm-hmm. by the prime minister, whoever that person is, after the election. So one question might be is, in terms of, of continuity of this culture which you've built up, what advice would you have uh, going forward, both from the administrative side and then, uh, Mr. McGinty, from your perspective, to keep this dynamic alive? I worked really closely with Minister Goodale when C-22 was being crafted, of course, um, and never being uh, privy to cabinet competences. But we toured Europe and met with a number of counterpart organizations and studied what they had done very carefully. And one of the things that we decided early on was we needed a, a secretariat, in this case led by Rene Marcoux, that would transcend the membership. Uh, that would be the would be a large part of the continuity going forward. That would have the institutional memory. That would have the research memory. That would have the the, the file work built. That would have the information collated and ready to build on going forward. And in some cases, for example, like one of our 2019 reviews, where we're looking at a timeline of several years mm. to to measure performance, that's particularly important. My advice would be um, uh, that a that the organization continue. I think we've shown that it's very very important for Canadians. Um, number two, look for that continuity amongst the, the parliamentarians who are there. That's really going to be up to whatever government's elected uh, in the fall and, um, and build on that base. Uh, so we're, we're confident that um, uh, so much of what we're doing is it resides with Ms. Marcoux and her team that uh, that will help give lift to whatever uh, new committee is struck uh, after October 21st. Mm-hmm. And I will use it the same way the government does in a transition of government. So we're going to take the time. Obviously, it won't be, we won't be focused on supporting the committee, but we'll have had almost two years of experience that we're going to have to formalize in terms of our policies, our practices, which we have actually haven't had time to do, but which are really important going forward. So I'm going to take the time to do that. Obviously, give the staff any time to take language training or anything else that they're going to have and prepare for the transition to a new committee. We don't know how long it's going to take, but uh, want to be ready. This time, what happened for the first committee is that they had already been appointed up and running for at least six weeks before 
I actually started and then, of course, took the time for the rest of the staff to be hired. So at least in this instance, we're, the secretariat won't be playing catch-up, so we're going to have a lot of material to ready to, to support A them. template. Renny's being too exactly. modest. She's being too modest here. I'm not for sure being too modest. Because in the last 18 months, not only did we have to stand up an entire secretariat, but we had to stand up a whole new suite of office facilities that were built to code and built mm. to certain standards. Um, uh, we had to uh, hire all the staff. We had to develop the protocols. We had to set up a communications approach. We had to, do, uh, you know, do basics, websites, letterhead, business cards, uh, staffing, human resources, uh, budgeting, and some reviews, and some reviews. Uh, so, review. you know, so <laughs> we kind of feel it's kind of feel like uh, the whole team. And by, by the team, That's I mean uh, I mean uh, all the staff and the members of the committee combined because we do really function as one seamless team, we, it, it's almost as if we've been flying a fighter a jet while we were building one. Mm. With uh, help from the government. With help from the government, yeah. with a lot of help from the Privy Council Office mm-hmm. and other actors that yeah. uh, that really helped to enable us to get this thing off the ground. Maybe we could get into the actual process of the reviews, speaking of which. Can you explain how you chose these to reviews, I, there, I believe there's a functional review, which is about the the intelligence priorities process, mm-hmm. and there's an activity review about the Department of Defense. Yeah. So, can you perhaps speak to to that? I mean, you do a good job of it, I think, in the report, but just for yeah. our listeners. Do you want me to start? Please. So, as you know, the the world of national security and intelligence is, and our mandate itself is very broad, yeah. and there's a at least seven core agencies and departments plus the other ones who have peripheral mandates and involvement in national security. So the I guess the field was so wide for us that we had to figure out at the beginning, okay, so how it, what is it that we want to tackle? How is it that we're going to stand out and not duplicate the work of the existing review bodies who have been at it much longer than us? So as the, the chair said, when we started, we had information material. We went to all the, the departments and the agencies. And then the committee members themselves came with some areas of interest. So at the very beginning, we, the secretary, put together a series of a list of issues, topics that we thought would be of interest. We had those discussions at the at uh, numerous committee meetings. Then they they identified a few areas of interest. So we developed then terms of reference, as it's explained in our report. We we took an approach that was based on a number of checklists but not necessarily the same ones each time but that kind of helped us narrow down the field of proposals once the committee chose the two proposals and as you indicated stephanie uh, we just decided that it was probably the best approach was to do one at a strategic level and then one more focused on a department for the reasons we set out in our report we then draft uh, terms of reference, which the act says the chair has to write to the appropriate ministers and the prime minister, which we did. And then I sign off letters to deputy ministers. It's getting a bit, uh, I know, in the weeds, but it's this just to explain. This podcast is all about the weeds, it's all, man. Yeah, but it's also <laughs> to explain that we have a very systematic approach to this. We set out the time frame on which we want documents and then the types of documents we want. And then we give them a deadline, a notional deadline. Obviously, this isn't done in isolation. Though We have those informal discussions with the departments that are involved in this. And then as that is happening, my staff will have uh, working level meetings with the departments and agencies that are involved. We get the information. The staff look at it, go through, do an analysis, bring their own uh, information that they may have. We then will actually 
issue another secondary request for information if necessary. And that is often based on, for example, we'll see footnotes, references in the material we got to other information, so we'll put out that request. We then prepare what we call an interim report for the committee, which is used basically to get direction from them. And so here's what we're seeing in the, in the information. What do you think of this? Is this an area you, you want to explore or would you like us to go this way? So we get direction from the committee. Then we will have hearings with the departments and agencies. And I think it's important to note that what we do there is we really let the those departments choose who they think would be best suited to respond to the questions the committee may have. Based on all of that then, and that would take, that can go up to two to three months, depending on the amount of information we got. We will prepare then a first draft with our findings, the Secretariat's findings, which we will run by the committee again. Then we will then give it to the departments and agencies for fact checking. So do we have this right and that's really important because right. if we have our facts wrong, then our findings will probably be mis, misguided or misleading. So that's an important process. Then we pr- will prepare a second draft, which with our uh, draft recommendations, which will then be discussed by the committee. And I must say the committee, these uh, previous reviews spent a lot of time on the recommendations. So. As a member of the Secretariat, it's really important to say it's the committee's recommendations and findings. We may draft it, but they definitely shape it. And uh, so I think that's really important for them to have ownership in, in the reviews that we've done. So there's a couple of stages there. That's wrong, but that's... So, so yeah. No, no not, not at all. That's very useful. So you have substantial powers in terms of your ability to see information, mm-hmm. right? Now, it's not an absolute... Uh, no, ability to see information. Read, yeah, it's so in, uh, yeah. cabinet confidence are excluded. Mm-hmm. Certain other uh, yeah. information uh, is potentially excluded. Identities of sources, right, witness, uh, protect, uh, protected witnesses. Tied to law enforcement right. activities, that, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you uh, presumably then are uh, able to ask for this information. Mm-hmm. What's the response like? In what sense? Like From the government. So mm-hmm. how would you how would you have assessed, uh, given your experience over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. the government reaction to these requests, Did especially from agencies that have never been reviewed before, mm-hmm. right? Which is going to yeah. be novel. Solicitor yeah. client information is coming in. Which, right. That's different too. Right. It's yeah. because we are allowed to have access to solicitor right. clients. So I, I guess I mean the way I'd put it is, how well do the government departments cooperate? Mm-hmm. Well, look, it's been you know what Rennie just described to you in a couple of minutes. Sounds simple, but it took the committee and its internal. By the way, that did not sound simple. Okay, go ahead. Okay, okay great, great. <laughs> that did not sound make sure. simple at all. Okay. She makes it sound simple. Uh, she makes it sound easy. But in fact, it took us a long time to craft that process. We wanted to nail that process down at the front end. Uh, if you don't have a clear process at the front end, and if everybody doesn't understand what journey you're undertaking, you get into trouble at the back end. Right. Uh, that's been my experience in running teams and, and uh, multi stakeholder process, deliberative processes like the, the ones that we conduct. Anyway, for listeners who are interested in the report on page 13 and 14, we've put out in very, very plain English and plain French how we decide what to review. So we wanted to get that nomenclature up front and mm-hmm. nailed down. But then going, going to this question of access to information, I've, al- I've always said, just by, anal- by way of analogy, that it doesn't really matter what the standing orders in the House of Commons say. It doesn't really matter what the standing orders in the Senate say. If everything you do there isn't predicated on good faith, right. it's not going to work. It's not going to work because the rules are not going to get you there. So what we've done is we built a unanimous approach um, to not only 
but to decide, but all these other steps that Rennie has put forward, this is unanimous. Mm-hmm. And it's also important to notice to note that the reports are unanimous. Mm-hmm. At least the first two we've we've come out come out of the gate with cultivating relationships with our our folks in the security and intelligence community is really important, and that's a delicate craft. Uh, it's about trust. It's about probity. It's about firmness. It really depends. Um, and we've learned a lot in the practice of the committee in its first year because it is a practice. Uh, and so we have we've cultivated very strong relationships with uh, some groups that are some or, or actors that are already subject to review. So mm-hmm. they perhaps are more inclined or more familiar with this concept. It's easy for them. Easy right? for them. And, and so others, it's it. new. It's very, mm-hmm. very new. So we're we're trying to to have a two way conversation, which we do on a regular basis. And, and if need be, we will we can get firm. Uh, and uh, request information that's either taking too much time or, or is perhaps uh, not as fulsome as it might be. And we've had a couple of those situations, but we worked our way through them. I think uh, like what we need to be cognizant of as a secretary and a committee is to make sure that, particularly for this year, is that information is provided to us so that we can finish our reviews on time. Right. That's what our biggest concern right, is. Right, because you've got a looming deadline in the form exactly. of the constitution of the committee coming to an end, right? Exactly, yeah. So you can't punt it. Uh, these things have to come out at no. a certain time. As soon as the House is dissolved for the election, the committee is dissolved. Right. Well, so then there's the back-end process. Now you've got a report, mm-hmm. and you're happy with it internally. Mm-hmm. It's submitted first to the prime minister, right? Uh, so yes. you're, you're supposed to give it to the prime minister, and then they have a window of time. And I say they intentionally, because it's not the prime minister himself that's doing this, but to vet for purposes of things that they want you to redact. Mm-hmm. So how does that process work? So in the case of the, the annual report, we submitted it to the Prime Minister and I think the relevant ministers, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Public Safety and National Defense, on December 21st. But the report is actually, it's submitted to the Prime Minister in each case. And as you said, it's not the Prime Minister who sits in his office with yellow, blue, pink, gray markers. Uh, it's given to the security intelligence community, who then goes through a report, depending on who owns the information at stake. And it's uh, coordinated by the Department of Justice, the National Security Group there. And they really use the provisions of the Canada Evidence Act, Section 38, as well as jurisprudence, etc., to go through our report. They actually prepare very detailed uh, charts for us. So once that process is done, they meet with uh, me and my staff, and we they go through the explanations, and we'll have a discussion, and uh, then they will provide it to us formally. And so the, the Section 38 criteria would be essentially injurious to national security, defense, or international relations. Right. Plus, presumably, also solicitor client so material. Exactly. And yeah. so the, that would be, they would ask for those redactions. Mm-hmm. But the way you write the report, so the Review bodies like the CSE Commissioner or CERC, they write a public version of their mm-hmm. of their of their annual report, uh, which is written in expectation that the whole thing will go out, and so it, it tends to be vi- very digested information. Mm-hmm. You've written your report very differently. You've written it uh, in a manner as it goes to the Prime Minister, expecting redactions, mm-hmm. but presumably hoping to retain the core of it without redactions. And so we can now look as members of the public and we can see where the redactions are because you've signified them with asterisks and, and, and also then sometimes a, a summary of uh, presumably a security sanitized summary of the information that's been removed. Mm-hmm. That must have been a very conscious choice. It was. Uh, and in this we were um, largely inspired by the ISC, the Intelligence Security Committee of the United Kingdom, 
who we met with on numerous occasions, uh, both in London and here. And we looked at their modus operandi, and they were uh, very helpful in insight in many areas, including this question of redaction. The committee deliberately chose to um, deliver its report to the Prime Minister in the form that it wanted to deliver the report to the Prime Minister. Uh, it does not write the report, um, you know, keeping in mind that it's going to go out into the public, at, you know, for 37 million Canadians to have access to. No, one of the, one of the things that makes us different from, from uh, the Standing Committee of, on National Security in the House of Commons is the access to classified information. Mm. And as a result, that, that classified information tends to inform our reports in, in profound ways and, and, and informs the outcome, uh, and the outcomes and the recommendations and the findings of the report. So the, um, the committee decided deliberately that it wanted to continue along that line. There was a debate always out there. Should you be drafting for Canadians consumption or should you be drafting for your client, the Prime Minister? And in this case, the committee came down squarely on the idea that we would keep the classified information in the unredacted report going to the Prime Minister and then have it go through the redaction process. And that would explain, uh, I know Stephanie had a question about the redaction mm -hmm. process, but it would also explain the tone of the report, which is it's a report that's quite sophisticated uh, in in its both its language and its structure. It performs an educative function, yes, but it also gets into the weeds in a way, frankly, that is uncommon for our review reports. I analogized it. It's more like a, a commission of inquiry mm. report than what we've seen from review bodies. Uh, and that, too, must have also been a conscious decision in terms of the level of sophistication. Well, a couple of things on that. Um, first of all, um, the members themselves rose up to an incredible level in terms of their efforts, as I mentioned earlier. The number of meetings, the amount of time, the, the, the toughness of the questions, the probative questions, the not just questions of our, of our folks giving us presentations or materials, but also questions of the staff, and the analysts, and to Ms. Marcus' whole shop. And one of the things I want to turn back to is something that Stephanie mentioned earlier about, um, and this is a great compliment to us that you're suggesting it's an adult report. Yeah. Um, it's an adult report because we, d we drafted it deliberately, uh, keeping in mind um, that Canadians are perfectly capable of understanding this. Uh, and I, I've constantly used the refrain that I've used in other places in my life that the real test here is stopping anybody in a Canadian bus, asking them to step off, step off the bus and, and explaining to them what's going on in the security and intelligence community and would they be able to read and understand what we're, we're presenting to them and we're fully confident that they can. Canadians really get it. The problem is they're just not getting enough of it in terms of information. So uh, just to maybe jump to a question Stephanie may have been asking, might want to ask, but one of the things we did in the first 31 pages of this report was we made a deliberate choice. We wanted to A, explain to Canadians what the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians is, how we work, what the nomenclature is, for example, we just discussed it, how do we decide what to review, what powers do we have, what can we see, what can we not see. And then the second thing we wanted to do was give Canadians a survey course. Mm. It's 101. It's National Security and Intelligence Community 101. Here are the actors, here are their powers, this is what they do, this is what they don't do, this is how they work together. From an architectural perspective, as I said during the press conference, almost at the top of the crow's nest. Our job is to look at the overall structure uh, of the SNI community in Canada, but at the same time, never be afraid to get into the engine room, right? Which is what we've done in this report. So we try to to encapsulate for Canadians: a) what we do as a committee; b) who are the players; and three: what are the threats. So I guess it's interesting because we've talked about the educative function, we've talked about redaction. So I'm really interested in what you didn't redact. I mean, you guys went for it. 
when it comes to talking about the threats to the security of Canada, mm-hmm. specifically naming countries, uh, in a way that perhaps our national security agencies feel that they can't do. So you, I'm kind of surprised they didn't redact that. Well, what we did was, I guess we we used a bit of the Circan Office of CSC Commissioner practice in that sense is that we were able to say those things by referencing material that was already made public. So mm. by virtue of referencing the media articles, the Dick Fadden reference, some of those things. Podcast. The podcast. Yes. <laughs> well, Sorry. It was deserved, so we, we referenced you. <laughs> I sent it to my mom. <laughs> but, so so the that's public why available shoehorned public, in the, the other stuff. We did, that, yes, yeah. exactly. That's why. But there's other areas uh, where it was redacted. So Can I just <clears throat> go back to redaction for a second? We, we were asked a lot about redaction when the special report on the India mission was, was published yes. and tabled. Uh, and we were asked again about the redaction process. And for us, it's a work in progress. Mm. The committee hasn't come to ground yet. We're not, we're not sure if we're in a position to say we accept the redaction process or reject the redaction process. But we're certainly learning as we continue to practice the practice of the committee. And so we have um, really turned our minds as a committee to this process. We've learned a lot about it. We've uh, read a lot about it. We've heard a lot about it. We've been briefed a lot about it. Um, And we're keeping more than a watching brief on the redaction process in Canada. We're also comparing the redaction process in Canada to other Five Eye actors, for example, and Commonwealth nations to see whether or not we're on or off the mark. Is it sufficient, insufficient? Is it uh, over the top? Is it just right? Mm. Canadians do understand that there has to be a degree of redaction because of the sensitivity of some of the material. But we're, we're constantly learning as we go through this process. And, and we do exercise some pushback function. Um, we have the right to do that. We don't have the right to appeal the way CERC does to the federal court, but we do have a microphone like this one I'm speaking into today <laughs> to say to folks, uh, you know, from time to time, if we don't, if we don't like it, or if we if we think there's overreaction, overredaction, or perhaps um, excessive redaction, uh, we can easily go to the pulpit and say Canadians were concerned about this. We think this has been over overly redacted, mm. and that's the freedom built into the uh, into the mission and the mandate of the committee, which is um, which is unusual for 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 a parliamentary committee or a committee of parliamentarians in this case. And we understand why the agencies and the security and intelligence community actors can't necessarily speak as freely. They have a mandate. They, they have lawfulness. They have mm-hmm. four corners of a statute within which to operate normally. And so we're, we're a little bit more flexible and perhaps have a bit more freedom in that regard. Because, I mean, security and intelligence, if you name and shame a country, that has foreign policy implications. Yes. It goes beyond their mandate. But you guys as parliamentarians have that right and I think but that's why I think the one of the, the big important things with this committee can actually do that but let me then just go further so we've talked about the educative function to Canadians have you found that there's any difference in the way parliament is seeing issues like can do do other members of parliament come up to you and like well there's this issue and I'm not sure like do do you can you can you give them without obviously breaching any oath that you've sworn, do you, do you think it's having an impact on the way Parliament does business on these issues? A couple of things on that. First of all, parliamentarians will come to me or other members of the committee uh, in both houses from time, to, from time to time and say, you know, I have a great suggestion for your committee. This is something you might want to look at. Interesting. And, and we'll say, great, okay, tell us more. Maybe send us a letter or, you know, we're open to receiving. That doesn't mean that we're going to be bound by it. It doesn't mean that we're going to... Um, 
get back to them. It doesn't mean that we're, you know, maybe we take it under advisement, maybe we do, maybe we don't. And similarly, we have, a, of course, we can get references from a minister, including the prime minister. And in, that case, in those cases as well, we don't necessarily uh, feel that we're obliged to act on those recommendations. So that's one um, parliamentary impact, if you will. A second is coming out of the gate with this annual review has, I would say, what's the reaction? The reaction is, um, boy, boy, that's important stuff. Really? Well, we, we didn't quite know what you were working on. We didn't know the level to which you were going. We didn't understand um, the classified material implications. We didn't, we didn't quite get it because this is all new. Yeah. Uh, and um, we also didn't get the nonpartisanship of it which is why we were so delighted uh, about this 2018 annual review um, being supported by all three parties in the House immediately upon its tabling. Um, we're, not surpri- we're not really surprised because we've got that representation at the table. But it was, I think for a lot of folks, it was, holy cow, there's a lot of important stuff going on here, and this is an important mechanism through which to deliver objective, nonpartisan information to Canadians who need to hear more about this. I think another important thing is that uh, our act calls for our reports to be automatically referred to the two relevant committees, uh, parliamentary committees, so SECU and SECD, as we say. The SECU the is the uh, House Public of Commons Safety, Committee. Yeah. Yeah. And then and the SECD. Senate Committee on de- Defence and Security. That has to happen automatically. Whether or not they invite you or the government is up to them. But mm. And sometimes our, our recommendations are such that, like in this 2018 review, we recommend the C-59, Bill C-59, which is in the Senate, be amended. Well, obviously, that's stoked a lot of interest in the, in the Senate. Uh, and we have three Senate members on the committee who are constantly being approached to, you know, to, re- to talk more about why the, why this is so important and can this be done and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's not really our bailiwick. We're not here to deliver the implementation of those recommendations. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean to say that we're keeping more than a watching brief on those recommendations, but it is up to the government now. And so it's, it's, it's fed the fire of interest in both houses. So this is a nice segue then into the, the highlights of the substance of the report. So uh, first question is, what is it, if, if you're giving the elevator pitch in terms of the, the, the things that our listeners should draw in terms of substance from your report, what would it be in terms of recommendations and findings? And secondly, you mentioned the idea of watching brief. So you're a standing body, although the composition of the body in terms of members is going to change. You've made recommendations. What sort of follow-up in terms of, of or proceeding with sort of an overview of those recommendations and whether they've been followed by the government do you anticipate for the committee? First of all, just in terms of the report, which is, all, of course, all available online, um, and, um, you know, Chapter 1, as I mentioned, is really ENSACOP. Who are we? What do we do? How do we do it? Mm-hmm. Chapter 2 is this survey for Canadians, in plain English, clear, crisp, objective depiction of who does what in the security and intelligence community and what the threats are facing Canada. Mm-hmm. Chapter 3, we chose deliberately because, again, we believe from a framework perspective, we do both, uh, we do framework and we do activity-based reviews. From a framework perspective, this this report, we wanted to examine where it all started. And where does it start? It starts a cabinet. So we looked at the intelligence uh, making priority process for the country. How do we come to ground on these priorities? How does cabinet make decisions around this? Uh, what information are they fed? What kind of information are they fed? Is it timely? Uh, once the decision comes back from cabinet, to what extent are things properly um, delegated? Um, to what extent are the the actors in the community properly deployed, properly resourced, 
properly staffed. So we wanted to go to the top of the pinnacle and we wanted to explain to Canadians that this is where all of this is is uh, generated from. Um, and so chapter three is a pretty detailed look at that process from the beginning. Why is that important? As I mentioned, because everything flows from it. And so we heard a lot about how many priorities the country has, yeah. the strategic intelligence requirements. It's all in the report, 400 plus. People saying, well, that's, you know, when you have 400 of anything on a list, that's not a priority list. Uh, we heard a lot about that. We heard a lot about the workability of the implementation of those 400 plus SIRs, as they're called. Um, it's all, again, all depicted in, the, in this chapter. Uh, and so we made a number of recommendations for change, looking for that operationalizable, implementable recommendation for change to improve the situation. Another important point here for listeners to understand, we're not a gotcha committee. Mm-hmm. There are lots of gotcha committees. There's lots of gotcha activities in this partisan world we act in. We're not a gotcha committee. You're a strategic. We're strategic. Yeah. We're, we're neither apologists nor critics of a government. Uh, we are here to try and do our job to implement these reviews and to come to ground with findings that will help improve the situation, recognizing that security and intelligence is a work in progress. So the, the recommendations and findings from Chapter 3, for example, try to reflect that, and they're 100% uh, consensual amongst the committee members, and we think helpful. Mm-hmm. Chapter 4, moving forward, was our activity-based uh, review, which focused in on the whole question of the intelligence activities at the Department of National Defense and the Canadian Armed Forces. Why did we choose that? Well, again, going back to our criteria on pages 13 and 14 of our report, you can examine some of that criteria that we came to ground on. One of the reasons that we looked at D&D, not not exclusively by any means, was that they've never been examined by an outside review body. So we honed in very much on this question of intelligence and national security angle at D&D and began probing and examining what was happening there. The size, the scope, the anticipated growth of these activities, the fact that they're a full-spectrum organization, that they do what CSIS, CSE, and the RCMP do as well, um, this uh, was a very important factor for the members mm-hmm. in coming to ground and deciding to, to pursue this. So we took a long, hard look at how DND's intelligence activities are backstopped with a legislative basis or not. Uh, clearly, they do have one. We found no evidence of wrongdoing or unlawfulness or illegality. Let me make that perfectly clear. But we wanted to examine the footing. So you are doing all these activities, and from whence do you derive that, this authority? So we looked at these authorities very carefully, in great detail. Uh, whether it's this old English concept of crown prerogative, which is a residual power vested in the crown, or whether it was the concept internally inside D&D of nexus, this connection between uh, undertaking a military operation and then from that operation being able to parlay yourself into intelligence activities. We explored that in great detail and we came and we came up with a number of findings and recommendations. So like actually so this actually maybe brings us to the kind of next steps because one of them is you're you're not finished with defense. You have decided to continue to engage in looking at how the Department of Defense handles information when it gets intelligence on Canadians. Right, the collection, use, and dissemination of information on Canadians. And the reason we did that is because towards the end of the report on DND, as we were finalizing it, 
National Defense actually gave us this, uh, I think it's called a directional statement from the Chief of Defense Intelligence that basically outlines that issue, the collection, use, and dissemination on Canadian citizens. And so there of is course, a procedure there. Right, it's in the statement. So, right, yeah. but you want to investigate that further. Right, because, well, all we had was that, and it came fairly late in the process. And because of how important it is to, obviously, the the mandate of the committee and just the issue generally, the, the collection of information on Canadian citizens, the committee decided that we were going to park that for 2018 and then do a special report in 2019 to the Minister of National Defence. So that's underway. And, you, and you've picked three other topics as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have an ambitious agenda for the say, time we have. Because you're saying this Well... Not necessarily coming out. I don't think the committee, I think it's too early to say when we'll be able to finish it at this stage. The topics, the three other topics, which are they? So the first one is foreign interference. It's a two-part, so far it's going to be a two-part, describing to Canadians what is a threat to Canada, to Canada's security from interference by foreign actors, and then how does the security and intelligence community organize itself, how is it structured, how is it resourced, how do they work together to deal with that threat. And okay. so that'll be very interesting. Mm-hmm. And the second? The second one is a bit along the same lines as the one that we did for national defense, which is to look at the national security and intelligence mandate and activities of the Canada Border Services Agency. Who that, also have not been, have been reviewed in this respect. Right. And they, they of course, have a, a mandate that's much broader than just national security and intelligence. So we felt that that would be a, another interesting one for the committee to tackle. That one's going very well, I must say. A CBSA for an agency that hasn't been reviewed have been extremely cooperative. So... I think we're going to, yeah, I think that one will be quite interesting. The third one is the one that the chair talked about, the three-year assessment of diversity and inclusion in the Canadian security and intelligence community. Mm. So from everything from the current statistics, the profiles, the policies in place, the challenges they have. And we'd like to do that over three years. And that one we shamelessly copied from our UK colleagues, uh, which... I think caught the interest of the uh, the committee because it was so interesting the findings that they came up with. And so, what happens now? So, just I want to come back to the as you're making these recommendations and studies and reviews, and you're moving on to new ones. And so, one of the recommendations you made, for example, in this current review was, for example, a legislative framework, uh, legislative footing for defense intelligence. That's very your recommendation. Easy, very easy. Is there going to be follow up on that? Are you going to? refer to prior recommendations and, and, and do an assessment as to which recommendations were followed and which weren't, uh, take a, a watchdog role? That's entirely a possibility. We've looked at the CSE Commissioner's reports as inspiration because the CSE Commissioner does on a regular basis carry forward previous year's recommendations mm. into the next report to comment on whether or not, you know, the merits of, has this been taken up, not taken up? We have a, it's important for listeners to understand, we have a perpetual and ongoing dialogue with senior officials in the government. It's not as if we stop once the report in this case is delivered. We have constant dialogue with the National Security and Intelligence Advisor, the Prime Minister. We've made recommendations about that role and her responsibilities, for example, not only in this 2018 annual review, but in the India report as well. Mm. So we are targeting, uh, you know, commentary, discussions and follow through with different actors in the federal system. But that's that's a decision for the committee to take in due course. 
Um, but there's a huge appetite amongst the committee members to see uh, implementation. And uh, one of the things, again, I learned over a decade of making recommendations for change at the federal level when it came to sustainable development was that your chances for um, implementability go up if your recommendations are crafted in a way that are helpful and are uh, like Jerry Maguire, um, <laughs> try, trying to help a community that's trying to help itself. And we, we believe we found that that um, spot. And we're very, very hopeful that we're going to see some some serious action. We've also seen some other action. For example, we, we know that in a number of caucuses, pursuant to our first recommendation in the India report, there have already been briefings on national security issues and foreign interference uh, and digital security. And uh, I'm not speaking out of turn because it's the, the committee's aware of this. And I, I can say that I did speak to my own caucus about this. I, mean, I make, gave a major presentation to the Liberal caucus, uh, 175 strong, about the report and the process and the journey and where, we, where, where, where we're going. And I've encouraged other members of the committee to do the same. They've been given decks and overheads and ready to do this, to implement. So it's now up to us to drive this in a way that is helpful. But it is ultimately the government of Canada's responsibility. Uh, to take these recommendations and these findings and decide how they want to proceed. So that goes to Stephanie's question about the idea that the committee's expertise now could diffuse uh, through the rest of the parliamentary caucus uh, in a way that might make our conversations about national security law and policy a little bit more sophisticated than sometimes they have been in the past. Yeah, and also, you know, don't forget, in, in, you know, the last election, one of the reasons why our government committed to doing this was because of Bill C-51. And a lot of people were asking questions, tough questions at the door. What about this balance between security and rights? And what are you doing about this? We're a little bit concerned. And so we, we, we're trying to propagate our findings and, and our messages and our existence and our processes into our parliamentary colleagues in both houses so that and from all sides, from all sides, so that if I'm an NDP candidate or if I'm a Green candidate or if I'm a Conservative candidate or an independent candidate, I can go to the door and say, well, you know what, there is a, there is a body in place in a time of hyper-partisanship. There's a body in place which is nonpartisan because Parliament believes that these issues of national security intelligence are deserving of a nonpartisan treatment. And so we can, we can help at least assuage some of the concerns in Canadian society that there's a committee of folks, a proxy committee of Canadians, uh, parliamentarians, who've got their backs on this and who can ask these tough and probative questions and perform these reviews. Is there anything we haven't covered that, that you feel might be useful for our listeners to know? Uh, maybe I'll just pick up on this partisanship question because we work really, really hard to keep it neutral and keep it objective and keep it evidence-based. And if there's, we've had a couple of compliments from folks, and I think maybe even the two of you, which are really, really appreciated. But objectively, your, your comments about the strength of the writing and the clarity of it, and that, that was a very deliberate choice. We've agonized over every paragraph in this report as a committee. Mm. Nothing has gone through without going through the, the gauntlet of the committee. But we really want to make sure that we're putting into Canadian society and, and for parliamentarians, we want to put out information that is um, going to build trust uh, on many fronts and going to do it in, in a nonpartisan way, as I said earlier, in a, in a time of hyper-partisanship. It's a bit of a demonstration project. Uh, personally, I've, I've been on the record f- for a while. Um, I think this is a process that might be very helpful in other controversial areas like climate change, where we can build some consensus because it's, it's just too important to have held back bipartisanship. 
but that's not where we are on that front right now. So I think this is something we're really proud of because we think it's a model that people can emulate. Great. Well, I always make it a practice of leaving the chair having the last <laughs> word. <laughs> well. But no, thank you for uh, sharing your insights, the mechanics of how this works. And it's, I mean, both Craig and I think it's it's just a really important document. Thank you. And are hoping for a bright future for NSACOP. 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 I got gonna, it right. We're going to have to train ourselves. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> we you. win the right to keep the int- intrepid pen. You'd absolutely. Thank you. Here we go. Thank thanks you very, very much, much for coming. Th- and thanks for having us. Thanks yeah, for the thank time. You. And to our listeners, we will be back in due course. See you then. <laughs>